Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. In the summer of 1943, the body of Major William Martin of the Royal Marines, a British courier, was found floating near the port of Huelva in Spain. Upon his persons, he had, a t- he had top secret plans detailing the Allied forces' plan to invade Greece in an attempt to rout German forces on the southern front of Europe. Now, this plan made it all the way to Hitler's desk, and he relocated from Italy an entire panzer division, over 90,000 troops, to Greece to prevent the Allied forces from gaining any ground. However, what was not known was that Winston Churchill's war office had spent months prior planning disinformation, giving it to German spies, leading them to believe that Major William Martin was, in fact, a real person, and that he was known to carry important top-secret documents on behalf of the Royal Marines. So when the Allies placed a dressed-up body of a dead homeless man who came from London into the waters of southern Spain, with a name tag, an ID that had the name Major William Martin and planted fake top secret papers on his body detailing the invasion of Greece, German spies took the bait. More importantly, they passed those papers to Hitler who also took the bait. While the majority of the German forces moved to Greece, the Allied forces moved into Sicily and took Italy with just a fraction of anticipated losses. This move also allowed the Red Army of the Soviet Union to overwhelm German forces on the Eastern Front, beginning their march to Berlin. So long story short, this elaborate deception known as Operation Mincemeat may have been what turned the tide of the European war and ultimately leading to Allied victory. At the very least, it destroyed Mussolini in Italy and set the German forces back significantly. As I prepared for this sermon over the last few weeks, I've struggled to make it an uplifting one. But over and over, I firmly believe that this sermon is one that needs to correct us and call us all to repentance. My hope is that we will hear that what the Holy Spirit is saying to us and that we will walk out of here changed. You see, deception is a staple in human history. We cut our teeth on it. Niccolo Machiavelli once wrote in The Prince, men are so simple and so subject to present necessities that he who seeks to deceive will find someone who will allow himself to be deceived. My grandma and grandpa used to say, there's a sucker born every day. 
We practice deception whether that is deceiving ourselves or others. And we are often deceived by ourselves and others. Remember that the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. In fact, Satan is known as the father of lies. So this morning we will see, just like Joshua, we are easily deceived. Every single one of us. We'll see how Joshua and the Israelites were deceived into making a covenant with their enemies and how Israel would react once they realized that they had been deceived. But our God can never be deceived. He is a God of truth. And he is in the business of redeeming both those who have been deceived and those who have deceived others by faith in Christ and repentance. So after the victories at Jericho and Ai, all the kings of the promised land were extremely worried and they decided to join forces to defeat Israel. That is except the Gibeonites who are part of the ethnic group of the Hivites. The Gibeonites heard the same news that the other people in the area heard, but in verse 4 it tells us that rather than respond with force against Israel, they decided to respond with cunning, an elaborate plan of deception. The Gibeonites realized that they, the only way that they might survive is to trick Israel into believing that they came from a faraway land. And they wanted a covenant with them to bring them under Israel's protection. Now, deception is a common practice in war, as I've said. And we heard an example of that in Operation Mincemeat. Sun Tzu, in The Art of War, an ancient book on warfare, wrote, All warfare is based on deception. The Gibeonites believed that it was better to deceive than it was to bleed. They got a bunch of their old wore-out clothes, their old wineskins. They got the sorriest-looking animals they could find, and they approached Joshua. But I want you to notice that the Gibeonites began by retelling all that God had done for them since Egypt and retold all the victories that they had had in the wilderness. So the Gibeonites began their deception by making, by mixing truth in with the lie. Isn't that most, how most of us are deceived? I mean, it's not like Joshua woke up that day and said, I think I'll be dumb today and be deceived. He looked at the evidence before him. He gathered leaders around him. I think if we look at this fairly, we can say that Joshua made an earthly, sound, wise decision. Yet he was deceived. Even the leaders questioned the Gibeonites. In verse 7 it says, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant among you? Nevertheless, Joshua and the leaders of the congregation made a covenant with the Gibeonites to let them live. And perhaps the most important verse in this chapter comes in verse 14, and it says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
Now, brothers and sisters, understand that Joshua and the leaders of Israel gathered information. They inspected their provisions to see if it looked like they had come from far away. They questioned the validity of the claims made by the Gibeonites before they acted. But the Israelites were children of God. They were a nation that was supposed to seek God in all things. And the one thing they did not do was seek wisdom from God. God who knows all things. And would have revealed that deception. You would have thought that Israel would have learned from their experience in AI. As soon as Joshua fell on his face to seek God after their initial feat at AI, God revealed that Achan had what he, what he had done and ushered in ultimate victory, taking AI. So Joshua should have known that. He had had examples of that. But church, we do the same thing. We make decisions in our life without asking for wisdom from our Father. As Pastor Allen said a few weeks ago, we make decisions and then ask God to bless it, to protect us or come alongside of us. In teaching people how to make decisions, we recommend a good book called uh, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. And in it, he says, study the scriptures, listen to others, and pray continually. That's the best course of action, not just the moment of crisis, but as a way of life. As Christians, we're supposed to be like Israel and look to seek for God's voice in all things. We're supposed to be people of prayer, aren't we? Over the last few years, we've been trying to establish prayer as a staple of new life. We have had prayer meetings early in the mornings, during the week, on the weekends, before church, after church, morning and evening. And we struggle to get 5% of our church members to show up and pray for our community and our church. But if we have a picnic or a social event, boom, lots of people. If we hold a church-wide budget meeting, boom, people. I would love to stand up here and say we are doing well. But if I were to evaluate it based on the people showing up to pray and ask the Father for wisdom, I'd have to put us right where Israel was. When we don't seek the wisdom of the Father through His Word, when we neglect praying and the counsel of other Christians, the result is always the same. We set ourselves up for deception. Here Joshua sought counsel from other leaders, but failed to seek counsel from the source of all wisdom, Yahweh. And as a result, Israel walked blindly into deception. Now at this point in the text, I want to point out to you how Israel, the deceived, reacted after they were deceived. And how the Gibeonites reacted after they had successfully 
pulled off this deception to make a covenant with God's people. Once Israel realized they had, been made, they had made a binding covenant with the Gibeonites and not people from far away, they were obviously upset. When they marched up to the cities of Gibeon, they had no choice but to uphold their covenant and leave the Gibeonites in peace. Look at what the congregation did when they realized they would not be attacking the cities of the Gibeonites. In verse 18, it says, But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against its leaders. That will fix the problem. Don't get me wrong. Joshua and the leaders messed up. They made a bad decision and it affected everyone. And it could have all been avoided had Joshua and the leaders consulted God. But they didn't. But they did swear before God. And they could not break that covenant unless they went against God's name, which is sin. So the congregation's answer to move forward was to murmur or complain that the leadership put them in this situation. And we have to keep in mind in chapter 1, the congregation said to Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. So rather than praying for their leaders, rather than being helpful in any way, they grumbled against their leaders. They said, we will obey, but we ain't going to be happy. We aren't going to be helpful, even though we have been given grace upon grace. We are not going to be gracious. You're going to know that we disapprove of your leadership. Christians, your leaders will disappoint you. Every one of them. Your mom, your dad, your boss at work, your pastors, your deacons, your elected officials. All of your leaders are men and women that struggle just like you with sin. They struggle with being patient. They struggle finding wisdom. They struggle gaining knowledge. And notice they do this even when working in a plurality. In this church, your elders will sometimes do things wrong. They'll say something wrong. They'll fail to do this or that. And I want to tell you right now that the answer is not murmuring or grumbling, finger pointing, distrust or disobedience. I actually looked it up. Perfection is not a qualification for elder or deacon. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. 
Grumbling is not a mark of the child of God. Disputing is not a mark of the church. Hebrews 13.7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as you will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's not just the congregation that doesn't need to grumble, it's the leaders as well. I'm not standing up here and demanding on behalf of the elders of New Life for your fealty. We're not kings. We are shepherds. So it's our job to keep watch over your souls. That means it's our job to teach you and show you God's word. To fight against wolves, whether you think they're wolves or not. We're called to teach you, not just with our voices, but with our actions by living in faith, in repentance, and obedience to what we know to be the truth and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm standing up here and asking you to understand that we will stand in front of Almighty God and give an account for how we led you. And we take that seriously. And we understand the weight placed upon our shoulders. And we're able to do this with joy because we know that we are not the great shepherd. And we can trust in the sufficiency of Christ and his blood. But this passage also tells us to obey our leaders. The word obey is patheo in the Greek. And it doesn't just mean to follow directions. It means to have confidence in, to have trust in. And the only way that you can place trust into fallible men is to trust in the God that put them there. The only way that you can trust your leaders is to know that they are put in leadership by God for you, as it says in Romans 13. See, the reason the Israelite congregation was sinful in their murmuring was, was because they did not trust God to correct, to direct, or to redeem them after their leaders made a poor decision. So Joshua and the leaders made a binding covenant with the Gibeonites. But pay close attention to what they did not do after they realized they made a covenant in God's name with their enemies. They did not continue to sin. They did not make it worse by going against the covenant. They made no excuses. They knew they done messed up. I wanted to say you done messed up, Aaron, but Aaron came before Joshua, so it didn't fit. <laughs> they messed up, but they didn't make it worse by messing it up more. Even though the congregation wasn't happy with it, Joshua honored the covenant and honored God by keeping Israel's word. But what Joshua did do was confront the deception. He called it out for what it was. And then he trusted God to hold the covenant of peace together. So though Joshua and the leaders did not put their trust in God to begin with, they did not make the mistake of continuing in that distrust. They understood that they made the covenant in the name of the Lord. And they would live in accordance with that covenant 
On the other hand, you have the Gibeonites, who were also part of that covenant. And though they deceived Israel to get a covenant of peace, they had a pretty good reason to do so. They were afraid. We often practice deception when we're scared. They feared the punishment of God. Look at what they tell Joshua in verse 24. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. The Gibeonites could have made this covenant and then joined forces with all the other kings, knowing that the Israelites were bound to keep peace with them. But that's not what they did. They also honored the covenant because they feared God. In fact, Gibeon was a great city. And all its men were warriors, as you'll see in chapter 10 next week. So it's not like the Gibeonites were full of a bunch of cowardly and weak men. Gibeon was a city high on a hill. It had strategic value. The men of Gibeon were mighty. But they responded with faith and humility when they were confronted. Look at verse 25. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us. Do it. So Joshua then made them servants to the tent of God. It's interesting that the city of Gibeon becomes a Levitical city, meaning that the ministers of the Old Covenant, that's where they resided. That's where they're trained. It becomes known as a holy place in Israel's history. Gibeon is where Solomon goes and prays to God when he's made king and asks God to give him wisdom. Gibeonites were mentioned in the days of Nehemiah as men who helped rebuild the city wall of Jerusalem. So the Gibeonites end up honoring God and his people and kept the covenant with God and his people. But there was a consequence for their deception against Israel. They became servants of Israel. They were never again to be a warrior city or have mighty men or exist separate from Israel. Instead, their warrior city would become a place for priests. And they would be known as outsiders who would carry wood and water for the temple. But God honored the covenant made between Israel and Gibeon, and Gibeon by allowing them to live and serve the altar of the Lord. So they went from mighty warriors to servants. But they were alive and at peace with God's people. And they served in the house of the Lord. So even though they sinned, God still redeemed them. Even within their correction, for their sin became, their sin was forgiven because they feared the Lord and what he would do. So you might be sitting here today and think that that's a cool story. If you like history like I do, 
you love these historical narratives. It can be really entertaining. But what we need to understand is that these narratives are also to point us to Jesus. So first, if you're a Christian, this passage should, should start, spark a warning that even though you might have good intentions, you can still be deceived or live in deception. I mentioned earlier that we cut our teeth on deception. It's through deception that opened the door for us to sin and it separated us from God. Church, I want to tell you that we can sometimes walk in deception even though we believe in Jesus. We forget we are in a war. We're in a fight. The enemy is seeking to destroy us. And what is worse is Satan uses the truth to deceive us just as the Gibeonites used the truth to deceive Joshua and Israel. New Life, we spend hours expressing our opinion on whether we can use wine in the Lord's Supper. And we fail to help a brother or sister drowning in addiction. Fighting for sobriety and begging God to take away the sickness of dependence. We argue about secular theory on race and ethnic unity. And we fail to love the brother or sister who has grown up under generations of discrimination. That person who is sitting next to you wondering if Jesus really does care about them. The way he cares about other types of people. We'll send people across the world to assimilate into an unknown culture. But won't walk across the street to learn a culture of someone else different than us. We argue about vaccinations and masks and origins of disease, government overreach or underreach. There are brothers and sisters sitting next to you today who have been struggling to sit in their seats because they are fighting a crippling anxiety. Brothers and sisters who are struggling to find just one reason not to take their own life. Did you know that there are people in this church who have gone 15 months without hearing a word from a church member other than an elder or a life group leader? Did you know that there are people who are sick? you know who they are? We can argue that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And we'll pound our fist in support and sitting next to you as a couple who may or may not be married tomorrow because their marriage is done. And the only thing that keeps them together, the miracle. Are you helping them in that fight? There are brothers and sisters sitting next to you who are fighting against same-sex attraction. Who are groaning Asking God to remove that from them. 
And there are brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you who are not married and will leave here today only to sleep with each other. We have single mothers who are overwhelmed. We have fathers who have no idea how to be a father because they never had one. We have men and women sitting next to you who can't get that abusive parent or spouse's voice out of their head telling them that they're worthless and forgotten. What use is a statement of faith for them? What use is the church for them? I'm sorry, new life. We've been deceived into thinking that a statement of faith is more important than doing the work of the gospel. And we've been called to do that. And if you're sitting there thinking that I'm being harsh, let me just point this out. We've been pushing for weeks with an all-hands-on-deck campaign just to make sure that our children have someone who will teach them on Sunday morning. And out of 300-plus members, we still have spots open for volunteers. Now, I want to be clear. Do not leave here saying that I said that right doctrine is not important. Saying that a statement of faith that is true and that honors God is important, is not important. It is important. It's necessary. Having a biblical worldview is important. It's extremely important. Don't misunderstand me. But don't fall for the deception that you can make peace by having the right ideas about something without doing the work. You were saved by grace for good works. The work of Christ. Don't fall for the deception. You know, if it's not like, let's not be like the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Who were faithful in rooting out false apostles and testing everything before them by the word of God. But were guilty of losing their first love and serving him through their work. Of course, of course, we should have the right doctrine. We should seek to have clear definitions. We should seek and beg for knowledge. But we have been deceived, if that is our priority, to believe that what is in the right things without putting those actions into actions. Battles are won with a good plan and a force willing to get their hands dirty. We do that by loving the people around us. And we have not loved our neighbors well. In the well-known 1 Corinthians 13 passage that's said at every wedding that has nothing to do with a man and wife, it has everything to do with the church, says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Understand, this is not an either or 
This is a both. But one will pass away when perfect comes. When Jesus reveals himself to us in the flesh. Jesus showed us how to love. Jesus was quick to preach the truth. And he gave his life up for us. That is what lasts forever. We have to be doers of the word, not just experts in what it says. You might be able to quote chapter and verse, but so can the enemy. Believe me, any creed, statement of faith, or confession that is true is a good thing. But even the demons believe that it's true. It is by what we do with the truth that defines us as Christians. Don't fall for the deceptions. Petition the Father. Beg the Holy Spirit for wisdom and the ability to act in spirit and in truth. And when you realize that you have been living in deception, repent. Don't continue to live in it. Live in the freedom that God sent His Son, Jesus, to redeem us from the enemy's lies. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I am so sorry that you had to hear this today. But it's easy to hear this and say, church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Don't fall for that deception. Remember I said that we are all deceived at some level. We cut our teeth on it. Jesus was not deceived. He walked through all of the deceptions handed to him and never fell for them. He had perfect communion with the Father. And though he had perfect communion with the Father, he laid it down by taking your sin upon himself and went to the cross. And it is through His blood that we are redeemed, even though we may deceive others or be deceived. If you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you about it. Don't let another moment go living in deception. Turn to Christ. Only He can redeem those who are deceived and those who deceive. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are true. You are our foundation. You are our banner. You are our standard. We repent this morning by making some things too important and other things not. By not completely obeying your word. We are a sinful people. Thank you for the blood of Christ that covers all of that sin.
Thank you for the redemption that you have offered us, that even while we are deceived, you still work in mysterious ways and in great ways and still work to save people from the bondage of sin and death. Father, we petition you for wisdom. We ask for knowledge. We ask for grace for one another. We ask for the fruits of the Spirit so that we may love one one another well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.